Thank you all for being here today. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, if you're joining us online, welcome. Uh, it's great to be with you all in person for those who are here. We'll be in the Bible today in Luke 14, 12 to 24. Uh, Luke 14, 12 to 24. As Raquel said, this is Palm Sunday, if you're, if you're following sort of the church calendar at all. Of course, this is the season of Lent. Uh, if you have chosen to give anything up for Lent, if, you, if you're familiar with that terminology, if you come from a more traditional background, you've, you've chosen to make this a season of kind of fasting, um, giving something up, as it were. Well, the end is in sight. Amazingly, next Sunday is Easter, the, the day that we do celebrate our Savior's resurrection. Um, and of course, uh, Good Friday precedes that. So this Friday, we have our liturgical Good Friday service. So that'll be a new thing for Trinity. I would highly encourage you to join if you're able this coming Friday. <clears throat> uh, today, we will be uh, going through a parable that Jesus taught, uh, sort of leading up to this great day of celebration. Um, we'll touch on some relevant themes in Jesus's own teaching. Well, of course, the whole Bible is his teaching. Uh, and a portion of this teaching that highlights his words uh, to a group of people that he's, he's sharing a meal with. So uh, I will pray, and then we will get into Luke 14, 12 to 24. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, another Sunday to gather as your people to celebrate the work of your Son. Uh, I thank you for this, this Palm Sunday, this, this day to remember the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem with uh, the palm branches being thrown before him, uh, his, his kingship, his lordship being celebrated. Uh, of course, it was soon scorned and mocked and rejected, uh, but God, thank you that you do have the last word that Christ is on his throne, that we are gathered for him today. I pray that we would hear your word, we would hear your conviction, your teaching, your encouragement um, your rebuke where it's needed, uh, but most of all, God, your grace, your unmerited favor towards us through this teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so Luke 14, 12 to 24. Uh, this is the parable of the great banquet, as it's titled. Uh, <clears throat> G he, Jesus, said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. 
So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You've got to love the one who married a wife but couldn't come because of that. It's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Um, So I think we would all agree the significance of of sharing a meal together, of eating in the presence of loved ones, or or being invited to to a a party or a feast or a banquet, uh, which is talked about in this passage. I think it's easy to affirm that cross-culturally, eating together is something very significant. It touches something very deep. It's something that the human spirit resonates with, values in general. Of course, there are exceptions. We, many of us might have grown up in homes where eating together as a family wasn't a thing. Uh, and, you know, that's a very common experience that in some way I do share, though, uh, eating together on Sundays and at holidays was definitely a thing in my family. And really, probably my best memories are in those occasions. Eating together with loved ones is something not just in my culture growing up, but I think it's something we can affirm that is common across cultures. Uh, You see that even, well, 2,000-ish years ago in first century Palestine. Um, Jesus is invited. uh, Earlier in our our chapter, I didn't read this today, but uh, Luke 14.1, he went in to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So a Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. Now, you've, you've heard that term before, Pharisee. You know, you know what that, you know what images that evokes. I won't get into that just yet, but Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner. This uh, religious leader, the Pharisees were just the, the religious leaders, the elite religious class. Well, one invited Jesus to a feast. Jesus is beginning to get a reputation at this time as a, as a powerful teacher and miracle worker. Uh, he's starting to gain a large following. I don't know the, the Pharisees' true motivations, of course, um, but earlier in the chapter it talks about how the, the, these Pharisees were angling to get the best seat at this, at this party. Of course, if you're familiar at all with the writings of the New Testament, you, you, you tend to know Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and how those tend to go and what his opinion of these individuals tends to be. Well, I don't know this Pharisee's motives, but I can guess, I can kind of surmise based on all of this context um, that he's, he's motivated by something other than just sheer generosity and hospitality toward Jesus. Um, it could be that he is looking to get, you know, improve his reputation with, with the general population because Jesus is very popular at this point with his teaching and his miracle working. It could be that he's trying to glom off of Jesus' popularity. It could be that uh, he's, he's very jealous of Jesus, which is, you know, what you do see clearly in the New Testament, and he's trying to therefore uh, trap Jesus. There, it, it says earlier in the chapter that they, they were watching Jesus. 
likely trying to trap him in, in some act of, of law-breaking. This, this feast was on the Sabbath. They knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. Perhaps it was to see if he would heal somebody on the Sabbath, which according to them would have been an act of breaking their law. They're, they're trying to destroy Jesus, likely. Um, either way, there, there's, there's, when you're jealous, you try to put others down, uh, there, there's an element of, of personal gain in that. You, you feel threatened by somebody else. You know, jealousy is a, is a destructive, destructive emotion. It uh, comes back to self-protection, um, elevating ourselves in the eyes of others. Um, Jesus knows all this. He, he knows what is in man. The, the Gospel of John says he, he knows what's in the hearts of men. He, he, <laughs> there's nothing that anyone at this feast has done or is doing or is motivated by that he's not very well aware of, but he still showed up. Keep that in mind. He still showed up to this potential trap of a feast with others. That'll be important for us later. Now, he, he, he's, of course, being open and honest with uh, these individuals. Um, he's speaking directly to them <laughs> in a way that is not the most very flattering to them. And he says, when you give a feast, don't just invite the ones who can elevate you in some way and repay you. Uh, no, invite, invite these others who are more, more cast away, more cast-offs in society, the ones who can't add anything to you and will probably even lower your status in the eyes of your peers. So the first important thing to say about that is, of course, he's not forbidding normal social life. You have to be contextually sensitive to, to how to read these. He's not saying to us, to anyone who might read this, that never invite your friends and family to a dinner. <laughs> that's, that's, that's very obviously not what he's saying. I, I hope that we wouldn't tend to read it that way. He's not forbidding social life. No, he's teaching them something about God. He's teaching them something about the character of the God they profess to worship. And, and unfortunately for them, it's not that flattering to them. Uh, he, he's poking them right, right where, right in the sensitive spot, right to their most deeply held beliefs and assumptions. Um, and he's saying, you're, you're trying to do something over here, but the truth of that is actually over here. You, you've kind of missed the big thing by staying in this place. I want to reorient your, your understanding of who God is by um, actually exposing your hypocrisy. I just, want to, I just want to gently point that out to you. It's, it's right there under the surface, and I, I want to, um, you know, through this, this parable actually help you to try to understand that. And just to, just to make, make sort of a bridge to our day, you know, um, the, the idea that someone would have invited Jesus or someone would have invited uh, their, their well-established, well-thought-of, socially elite peers in order to elevate their own um, self-image in the eyes of their peers you know, seeking to be blessed by inviting those who are blessed. We, we seek blessing by trying to get it through those who seem blessed. Blessed by association, all right? You know, trying to get that mentioned by an influencer. It's all, the influencers are, you know, the, I guess the Pharisees were the original influencers, the, the ones who had the status, who were able to elevate the status of some, someone just by mentioning that person, being retweeted by a blue check mark, you know, this, this whole idea of associating yourself with somebody who has the status that you wish that you had, the whole, you know, 
this famous human experience of wanting to sit at the popular table. I had that experience. I did not sit at the popular table. That's something I wanted to do that it was not open to me to do. Anyone, is that some, any, does that resonate in any way? Wouldn't you say that, <laughs> actually, yeah, I, I had that desire too. I wanted to be liked by kids that were, that seemed, you know, the, to be the most liked, the most attractive, etc. Is a personal anecdote on my birthday. Maybe, maybe you were someone who sat at that. Maybe you were one of those popular kids. No, no judgment at all. No doubt you were happy to be part of that group. In any case, um, as a personal example of just something pathetic in my own life, in one of my birthdays in elementary school, my parents took me out to eat and said, invite a couple friends. You know, we went out to eat. I could invite a few friends, not a lot. Uh, I chose to invite some friends who, to me, they were just more, more popular than actually some of my actual friends who I was close with. So I, <laughs> I overlooked actual close friends for popular kids. It's to my shame that I admit this uh, as a seven-year-old kid doing this. Uh, to this day, I think, wow, I want to disciple my son in such a way, my future son in such a way that he is not acting just shamefully as a seven-year-old kid. Just, just can't emphasize the, the shamefulness of, of my actions at that age. Uh, it, it all comes back, really, to trying to elevate ourselves in the eyes of the world. And Jesus says, this is the opposite way to obtain real blessing. Real blessing comes from God alone. And God is a God who is interested in our humility more than he's interested in our status and those we associate with. God is interested in our humility. And what is humility? What actually is humility? It's simply caring more about what God thinks of us than what other people think. And if that was our general disposition as a human race, I don't think Twitter would exist. Certainly virtue signaling wouldn't exist. Caring more about what God thinks of us than what other people think of us. But... To be, to be truthful, we all want to be liked. We just all want, I want to be liked. The Pharisees wanted to be liked. Some of us might be so bold as to say, I don't, I don't care what anyone thinks about anything. I don't care. what you, you might be one of the, I just don't care what anyone ever thinks about anything in the world at any time. And I would say, God bless you. God bless you. But I, I, I would gently suggest that that is just another side of the same coin. It's just coming back to self in a different way. And the real irony of this banquet that Jesus has been invited to is that it's not real hospitality. It's a status game. It's, it's giving in order to get. It's coming back to the self of the host and those invited. It's a form of self-actualization. One of the guests actually assume, just boldly assumes boldly proclaims to Jesus that, that he is one of the blessed ones. You know, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, assuming, of course, that he's one of those ones, meaning simply that he thinks he's one of the good ones. He's on the right side of history, as we might say today. He's one of the elect. But in response, he gets this parable that's meant to reveal his actual standing 
before God. When Jesus answers you with a parable, you're in trouble. You, you do not want to be answered with a parable when you ask Jesus a question. Uh, it means you've missed something important. It means, uh, it means I need to be taught something. Uh, you know, if Jesus is answering you in a parable, um, there's a bigger picture that he's inviting you into. There's a bigger understanding of God that, that he is opening up before you. He's saying, in effect, you all at this banquet might be feeling pretty self-satisfied, that you've been accepted in polite company. Um, but really, when you're confronted with the true character of God, would you know God if he was standing right in front of you? Would you, would you recognize God if you invited him to this very banquet? Or would you make excuses as to why you, you don't have to recognize him? Would you make excuses as to why? No, he's not at this banquet. No, I determine who's at this banquet. God's not at this banquet. Would, <laughs> would you simply excuse away the presence of God because of your preconceived notions? Notice, when he goes into um, this parable, the excuses that the individuals make, you know, this generous host has invited his people um, his brethren, and they make very bad excuses. The field is not going anywhere. The oxen actually aren't going anywhere. I mean, and I don't believe a purchase would have been made without inspecting those things beforehand. The one who married a wife might have, there might be something to that excuse. The, that, seem, that's, that seems like a more important social obligation than inspecting a field or or five oxen. In any case, to bring, it, to bring it into our situation, don't we tend to do the things we want and not do the things we, we don't want? Is, I mean, that's true in my life. We tend to do what we want in general terms and not do what we don't want. We prioritize the things that are valuable to us, that we enjoy, that we think are important, we don't prioritize the things that don't add value to our lives. Of course, there are legitimate excuses for why we miss things. But the general theme of our lives is that we do prioritize the things we want to do and find valuable. Um, there's, there's another level in the original context. Of course, you know, of course, the ones who made excuses don't find the host and his party. They don't need the host. He's not valuable to them. His party is not status elevating to them. They don't find it valuable. They're not prioritizing it. There's another level. There's a deeper level in this ancient Near Eastern context. It's an honor and shame context. Are you familiar with that terminology, honor and shame? This is an honor and shame society. Society works. Social relationships work based around these concepts of honor and shame. Do you have honor in the sight of your peers, your family, your, your kin, um, your tribe, the nation? It's all about group and family honor. Or do you have shame in the eyes of society? This is an honor and shame society. Failure to receive a dinner invite or failure to accept an invitation to dinner are the worst things that can happen. These are among the biggest snubs, the, the biggest... Rejections, I was going to use a different term. These are among the biggest rejections of, of somebody's generosity. 
This is an act of shaming. These individuals, it's not just that, <laughs> it's not just that they don't find him value. They're shaming, shaming the host, shaming the generous host in the act of rejecting his invitation. Don't miss that element in these parables. Don't miss the honor and shame component of reading the Bible. They are shaming the host. But they're not stopping the host. You can't stop this host. The host simply broadens the invite. He just says, I'm going to invite everybody. Those who have shamed me uh, won't stop this party from happening. It will happen. In fact, go. You notice he has servants. He's a, he's a man of status. He, he uh, issues the command to his servants. Go, compel people to come in. Go to the streets and lanes of the city and go beyond the city. And don't, don't overlook anyone of any status. Don't overlook the most despised. Don't overlook the most outcast. Invite everybody. Okay, I'm serious about it. Invite everybody. Now, these others have to be compelled. This isn't, this isn't as simple as, hey, go invite them. And, and the others say, okay, sure. I'll, you know, if we, <laughs> we would tend to think, yeah, if I were those people, I'd say, yeah, good, great, let's go, let's go. There, there's, there's a steep, steep, steep class barrier. If, if we were one of the outcasts in first century Palestine, there's no saying, oh, yeah, let's go. No, no. Number one, you couldn't repay the host, which is expected. This is a you know, reciprocity is expected in this society. You couldn't repay the host, so you're not, you're not going to go based on that. Number two, you, you simply don't mix that easily and willingly with somebody of a higher class. It's not in the, the mental framework. You just wouldn't have conceived that as a possibility. So the host says, no, compel them to come in. Break those barriers. Transgress those boundaries. Compel them to come in. Get them in here. <laughs> Get them into my party. And inviting those who cannot repay him in any way, it's important to understand the host is not becoming their benefactor. He's not enrolling them into his service. They're not becoming these indentured service, these indentured servants well, they're, where they will repay him with their service over time. You see, they're not becoming enslaved to this host in a way. No, he's stepping completely outside the bounds of any expected social customs, and he's creating a new social order characterized by hospitality and humility. He's creating a new world. He's creating a new kingdom characterized by hospitality and humility. The theologian David Jeffrey says that hospitality and humility are complementary virtues, both are required for obedience to the commandment that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. You can't love your neighbor as yourself without hospitality and humility. Now, commandments, of course, were part of the Jewish law, the, the written code of their life as a religious nation state. And this elite class, these Pharisees, took pride in their scrupulous law-keeping. You, you know that about the Bible. Um, they were the enforcers of the accepted morality, these, these scrupulous Pharisees. They enforced the morality of the time. 
But Jesus is telling us that this unconventional banquet host, you might even say this socially transgressive banquet host, is the only one who's keeping the law. He's the only one who's keeping the commandments because Jesus elsewhere says that the law is summed up in two commandments, loving God above all and loving your neighbor as yourself. You, you know these familiar things. Loving God above all and loving neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself. You might be dotting all your I's, crossing all your T's, but are you loving others? Are you loving others? Would you want to be treated the way you treat others, Twitter users? Kevin Van Hooser says that for the Christian, there is ultimately only one answer to the question, what should I do with my life? Love. Love. We are nothing if we have not love. And yet, why is this? the most often neglected aspect of the Christian life, loving God above all and loving others as ourselves. Why, if we're honest, why is it the most neglected aspect of the Christian life? Um, The former British slave trader, John Newton, who converted to Christ and wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, said that one would almost think that this passage in Luke 14 was not considered a part of God's Word. At least, I believe, there is no one passage so generally neglected by his own people. Of course, he knew that from experience. Part of this, I believe, is our tendency to to read ourselves into these stories as the generous host, as the one who doesn't need grace. We read ourselves as the one who gives the grace, not the Pharisees who need the grace. We're never, never, never the Pharisees in these stories, the ones who need the grace. What's doubly sad in Jesus' illustration is that this, this whole religious system to which these elite Pharisees are so dedicated is based around this anticipation of their great deliverer, their great Messiah, their Christ, their just and benevolent ruler, their righteous king, who would usher in this righteous and just and peaceful kingdom, this kingdom of abundance and shalom, okay, this total societal well-being, longing for this deliverer, every fiber of their being in the service of waiting and preparing and longing for this deliverer. (laughs) And this deliverer came. The Messiah came. He is here. It's time for the banquet. He's extending the invite right in front of them to them. But he didn't conform to their expectations, and they rejected his invitation. And of course, in doing so, they rejected him. And of course, in doing so, they shamed him. It's an act of shaming the one who doesn't meet their expectations. They've missed the forest for the trees. In their zeal for policing the borders, of the accepted social conduct, they've turned something good, morality, into a dehumanizing status game. They know what their Bible says, but their self-righteousness has blinded them to God's actual righteousness. They're more ideologically motivated than motivated by love for God and love for others. 
Therefore, when their actual Messiah is right in front of them with an open invite to the kingdom that they've longed for, they've turned him down because they're too busy being Pharisees. But that doesn't stop the host from having his party. Notice, he doesn't even retract the initial invitation. He says, well, none of those who were invited will taste my banquet. It's because they don't want to. It's beneath them. He doesn't retract the invite. He simply extends it out. This, this shows that the invite was never about one's lineage, one's birth, one's race, one's ethnicity. It was never primarily an ethnic form of inclusion. No, it's broad inclusion. It's global inclusion. The ones who are invited to eat bread in the kingdom of God are the ones who will come from every corner of God's creation. There was a time in my own life where I believed I was one of the ones invited. I had the religious jargon, but it wasn't real for me. It was about my identity as a religious person. It wasn't about my need for a Savior. Over half my life was lived in this way. And yet, despite my hostility toward the God that I professed, the Jesus that I prayed to, He showed up for me. He still showed up for me. On His initiation, I did begin to see my own need before Him, my own need of Him. And of course, only those who know their need before God are the ones who do end up at His table. Why is it a blessed thing to invite and or include and or associate with those who can't, not only can't offer you anything, but who actually will, will lower your own status by your association with them? It's because that's the character of God. We, we wouldn't be sitting here if that weren't the character of God. We cannot provide even one thing of benefit to Him, and yet He invites us to dine at His table. We are the spiritually poor the spiritually outcast, the spiritually unable who have been invited to Christ's banquet. More than this, those who have been hostile towards Him, who have elevated our own selves, who, who have acted toward Him in hypocritical self-righteousness, when in reality there's only one righteousness and it comes from above. It comes from God alone. God determines the moral standard for all of life, and we've all fallen short in various ways. Christ alone fully embodied it in His earthly life, and yet bore the penalty of separation from God on our behalf. More than this, He bore the shame of rejection, the shame of rejection, that we might know God's acceptance. And yet He invites us to His banquet wanting to sit at the popular table. It's, it's even in the human heart at all because our highest joy is to sit at Christ's table at the very center of the universe in His eternal kingdom of peace. But it does begin now. Astonishingly, it begins now. Christ even says, eat my flesh. This is my body. Eat my flesh. Not literally not literally, but partaking of Him, sharing in His life, receiving Him as our true sustenance, symbolized in the wafer, in the Eucharist, in the act of taking communion together, receiving Him spiritually through this communal act together. Of course, this also foreshadows the great banquet, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, the great eternal feast of God's people and His eternal kingdom of peace. The band can come back up as I close out. Uh, 
Many of the original invitees rejected God's offer and did miss out on his banquet. But what's astonishing about his invitation is that it's still being offered. Compel people to come in that my house may be filled. His house isn't filled. It's an open invite. He's still extending the invite. Tell your friends because it's an open invite. The invite is being extended to this very day, this very hour. As we approach the Easter holiday, there's no better time to tell your friends. It's an open invite. Compel people to come in. This is what the human heart is longing for, this, this table fellowship this eating together with loved ones, this great banquet in Christ's eternal kingdom that does begin now. We get to partake of it today. Tell your friends it's an open invite. God, I thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people, to come to your table, to partake of Christ's own body. Lord, I thank you for the great sacrifice of your son. Thank you, Lord, for enduring the pain the pain of separation, the physical pain of the cross and flogging, the emotional torment of the shame that you endured. God, I thank you that that was done for us. Thank you, Lord. You are a great, great God. Lord, help us to not reject your offer. Soften our hearts toward you, God, and toward each other. Let our our interactions be marked by humility, be marked by an awareness of Christ in our midst. If anyone, Lord, has, has begun to knock at the door or, or perceived you to be knocking at the door, uh, I pray that you would bid them to come in, to come and sit at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.